This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, check out our other podcast, Fiat Vox, about the people and research at Berkeley. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. This is BPM, the Berkeley podcast for music. My name's Nicholas Matthew. Today, the activist and songwriter Malvina Reynolds, the former Berkeleyan who would have turned 120 this month, I'll be talking to her daughter, the storyteller and singer Nancy Schimmel, who graduated from Berkeley in the 1950s, about Malvina Reynolds' life, music, and politics. Then I'll be catching up with three Berkeley professors, Margaret Crawford in architecture, Timothy Hampton in French and comparative literature, and Maria Sonjovitsky from the music department. We'll be talking about the meaning and history of Malvina Reynolds' Little Boxes, the daily city houses satirised in perhaps her most famous song, the history of anti-suburban sentiment, and the musical politics of the civil rights era. How would you describe your mother, Malvina Reynolds, to a generation who may not know very much about her, perhaps to a new uh, incoming class of freshman undergraduates at Berkeley? Who was she? Well, she was born in San Francisco. Her parents owned a small business, a tailoring shop. They made school uniforms and things like that which at one point they lost and they became the poor relations living with relatives. Her parents wanted their kids to go to college. They hadn't. She was an English major, wasn't she? She was an English major. And being an English major, being Jewish at that time, made it difficult. Her parents were both uh, immigrants from Central Europe or just her father? Both immigrants from Eastern Europe, actually, from uh, what's now Lithuania, and now I don't know what it is, but it was Hungary at the time. And she was a socialist. Her parents were socialists. She had a record. She couldn't get a job teaching. In the middle of the Depression, she was working in her parents' shop. It started out in San Francisco, and then... They were doing naval tailoring by then, and the fleet was stationed in the Long Beach, L.A. What kind of a place was Long Beach for this is, immigrant this is, European socialist Jews at the time? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, their, their home was raided by the Ku Klux Klan, if that gives you a clue. Her parents were having a fundraising party for the defense of the Scottsboro Boys, who were uh, black youths who had been accused of, of raping two white women, and of course had been railroaded. And so they 
were finished with the party and most everyone had gone home. There were a few people left having coffee in the kitchen, kind of, you know, the way parties go. And then they were invaded by, when one of them opened the door to leave, these, these uh, clan people were burning a cross in the front yard and came into the house and started dragging them out. They were finally stopped. Someone called the police and the police arrested everybody the clan guys, and the family. They put the family in cells and left the clan guys out in the police part because it turned out they were sheriff's deputies, a lot of them, from Orange County. So they finally, you know, got home and they were, and, they were, and it hit the papers and there was a grand jury investigation and the family was afraid that this would hurt their business and they were all living on, this was in 1932, is the Depression. And they were really living off the trade from the sailors. Well, it turned out the sailors were mostly Irish Catholics. So the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And they, they kept trading at the store. That's an extraordinary story and frightening, uh, but also with so many contemporary resonances. And I think certain elements perhaps that people today will find surprising or be able to identify with less. The first thing I think of is what you might call working class solidarity. You know, it seems as though at that time, there really was through trades unions and various other kinds of formal and informal forms of association, yes. um, a sense of class consciousness. At that same time, my father, that same year, was organizing the Ford Hunger March in Detroit. And uh, I think it was, it was still a struggle then but there was this sense of that the unions were a place to go for help. I, I think also uh, perhaps another element of it that seems very unfamiliar today is um, the presence of communist and socialist politics as a kind of mainstream uh, or at least marginal mainstream within a working class yeah. uh, politics. Yeah. And we tend to think perhaps of communism as almost a fiction, perhaps a bugbear dreamt up by McCarthyism in the 50s and not a reality about the way that people wanted to transform their lives or dreamt of transforming their lives. How important was communism, the Communist Party, American socialism? You know, these histories that aren't written very much yeah, in well, your parents' lives. They were both, I think, the communists more active, both in the labor movement and in the what wasn't the civil rights movement yet then, but in supporting, well, it's, it's a really complicated thing because a lot of the unions were segregated. The communists were in favor of unions and in favor of, of the uh, racial justice. That's a really interesting, complex 
part of the, the, that history of left-wing politics in the United States. And I, I want to get back to, to it in a minute. Something that you said I, I'd really like to pick up on just as part of the story, which is that, you know, this is all, this is all pre-civil rights era we're yeah. talking. And yet your mother ended up being really a, a central cultural figure in the, the civil rights movement, I think one could say. How did her experience as an activist and her involvement with the labor, labor movement and radical politics before the civil rights era, how do you think that inflected her particular take on it and her involvement with it? When you have been slapped black and blue by a Klansman when you're 32, you know what side you're on. <laughs> So, you know, she didn't get involved in the organizing part of the civil rights movement. She was, she wrote a few songs about it. She wrote, of course, she wrote, It Isn't Nice. She also wrote one, um, What's Going On Down There. So she was very aware of it. What she was organizing at that time was, was she was in the peace movement. So was I. And of course she wrote, uh, What Have They Done to the Rain? about the nuclear test, testing, which was making people sick and killing people. I mean, you also went to Cal mm-hmm. and were a psychology major, I believe, yeah. and graduated in the mid-late 50s. Yes. Um, so in a real sense, you're much more of the civil rights generation than your mother. So... How do you think your experience of the free speech movement and um, the civil rights movement was shaped by your mother's experience and also your mother as an increasingly prominent figure, at least culturally, within that movement? Yes, well, when I started at Cal in 52 and she was not well known yet, she was, she was known in, in left circles. She had written songs for the Henry Wallace campaign. She was in people's songs. So she was known, you know, in a certain level of people, but she didn't have a a hit until Belafonte recorded Turnaround. She was not well known at the time that she went back to Cal to get some music classes. What year was that? It was um, 54, I think. I started in 52, and we overlapped a little bit. And what happened was she was putting out her first songbook, Song in My Pocket, that was published by the California Labor School, which was, of course, a left-wing entity in San Francisco. And um, Lou Gottlieb was helping her with writing down the music because she didn't, you know, it's complicated writing down music. (laughs) And she didn't have all the details there. So he was helping her with that. And he said, I'm not going to help you with this again. You're going to go to school and learn how to do this yourself. So she did. She went back to Cal. And she has a story she tells about that, which is that she was signing up for classes, and the TA who was helping her said, oh, I'm sorry, I can't sign you up for this one because you don't have the prerequisites. 
And she drew herself up and said, I already have a PhD. I'm just coming back to take a few things. He, oh, all right, he said, and signed her up. She didn't say that the PhD was in English, not music. The Berkeley Podcast for Music. Little boxes on the hillside, little boxes made of ticky-tacky, little boxes on the hillside, little boxes all the same. There's a green one and a pink one and a blue one and a yellow one and they're all made out of ticky-tacky and they all look just the same. Yes, and her first hit was, was Pete Seeger's recording of... Uh, little boxes. Um, and that was at a time when he was blacklisted and other people did not record it until he recorded it because they wanted him to have the hit. So that was something that she had a say in. I mean, I, certainly nowadays, you know, people in music, particularly when talking about the 50s and 60s, are very conscious of very unequal patterns of credit for producing music, which is obviously not only profoundly racialized, but gendered as well. It's pretty interesting that your mother is this sort of hub, really, to whom so many musicians and activists uh, came. Nonetheless, herself um, ceded the limelight to people like Pete Seeger in the 1960s, or so it seems from our perspective. Well, he had been performing since the 30s, I think. He was a performer. He wasn't really a songwriter. There was a prejudice. It was definitely misogyny, but it was particular against someone of her age. I mean, a man of her age would have been okay, but for a woman of her age to try to get into music, she had started out singing folk songs, but as soon as she started writing her own songs, she was singing them. And when she started touring in the 60s, she never sang anything but her own songs. And she started before there was a term singer-songwriter. <laughs> so, you know, she was a woman singing songs she wrote. I don't know. She has been referred to, and in fact was referred to in one of her obituaries, as a blues singer. Now she, she'd written a couple of blues, and she'd written some bluesy songs, like uh, No Hole in My Head. But I think maybe it's because of her age. It's okay for women blues singers to be older, to be middle-aged. But it's not okay for women pop singers to be older. They have to be young. And she was as much influenced by the pop music of her time as she was by the uh, folk music. She heard both. How did she write songs? Well, little boxes, she just scribbled the words down in the car, she, because they were driving past that row of little boxes on the hillside. Um, Is it true I, that those little boxes are the ones near what's near Daly City now? Yeah, yeah. It really was about conformity, not about architecture. 
Yeah, let me ask you about that, because uh, Little Boxes is perhaps, because of Pete Seeger's um, recording of it, your mother's most famous song. It was also used as the theme tune to the Showtime uh, show, Weeds. You know, some people, you know, when you read about this song, frequently it will be criticised for an apparent snobbery i think yeah um in as much as it makes it sound as though these little boxes one are full of rather well-heeled people doctors and lawyers mm-hmm. um and second as though um there's a sort of bohemian disdain for i don't know petty bourgeois lives of uh-huh. conformity which perhaps could in another political context be recast as families striving for healthier living environments and uh, so on. How would you respond to that? I put that up. I put that up to East coast bias because they pointed to Levitt towns, which were struggling families, you know, getting there first, but the Hills with views south of San Francisco in, you know, the closest, down the peninsula from San Francisco, so easy commute to the city. These were not for working class. And, that, and you know, she said doctors and lawyers. That was clear. Did she, and this is a question for our undergraduates, I think, did she think that the university um, was a place that encouraged conformity and turned out conformists? Oh, I think the university did both. It depended on what you went in for. And I think that's true today. Actually, it's more true today that you go in in order to get trained for a job simply because the university costs so much. When I went to Cal, there was no tuition. There was an incidental fee. It was $37, which you know, in today's money would be $150 a semester. And that was it. So people could go. That's truly a different world. And not feel like they had to get a a degree in business. So it is a different world, the university. And I I don't know it. I really don't know it. The Berkeley podcast for music. So now can I ask a sort of, you know, the slightly more knotty questions about, and this is, I suppose, to go back to one of the things that you raised earlier about the sort of racial emissions or the ways in which racial politics cut across working class politics in the 30s in, in ways that were complicated and uncomfortable Uh, to talk about nowadays. The Musicians' Union was segregated in San Francisco when I was at Cal. My husband was a musician, and there were two separate locals of the same, you know, the same union, but they Mm -hmm. had separate locals for black and white. From uh, a perspective where the free speech movement at Berkeley the civil rights movement and all of the related activism have become, I I suppose you could say commodified to a degree. There's now a cafe, you know, in the uh, library that you can go to in Berkeley called the free speech movement cafe. And you can uh, 
get an oatmeal latte and sit at a table with large, very attractive, grainy photographs of student protesters all around you. Um, but that tells you of something about the sort of romance, but also perhaps the slight domestication of the threat and the real political stakes of that era. You know, one of the charges that sometimes leveled against some of the student activists, at least in that period, is that they were well-heeled white bohemians mm-hmm. um, who were in search of a kind of nebulous anti-authoritarian freedom, which actually was very consistent with the subsequent you know, neoliberal politics that many of them grew up and participated in in the 70s. Um, and actually was responsible for sort of deregulating and uh, and abrading infrastructure in a way that, of course, you know, now we're, especially now in the middle of this crisis, we're sort of realizing just how precious infrastructure is and authority and institutions and so on. I'm wondering how you'd respond to that. And I also wonder where you'd position your mother in relation to all that as someone who was, you know, from a different era. I think in a way... That's a false dichotomy because on the right, where they say they want smaller government, they pour money into the Pentagon even more than the Democrats do. They support the police, whatever they do. Um, So the whole thing about how much government we have, I think, is, is a red herring. Because it's not true that that's the divide. It's what the government does that's the divide. And and you know there's an interesting thread that goes through all this, which is that in the Ford Hunger March, four men were killed. They don't know whether it was by the police or by the hired police, you know, the security guards of Ford. It was deputy sheriffs who raided my grandparents' house. It was police, it was state police who dragged students down the stairs of Sproul Hall during the free speech movement. And it's police brutality that we're demonstrating against now. It seems like every so often a generation of students gets politicized by the police. And that certainly happened with the free speech movement. And it happened in 1960 when there were students at the HUAC, the House Un-American Activities Committee uh, hearings in San Francisco in the city hall. And they got washed down the stairs with fire hoses and they got politicized. My mother wrote a song about that. It was to the tune of Billy Boy. Did they wash you down the stair, Billy boy, Billy boy? Did they wash you down the stair, charming Billy? Yes, they washed me down the stair. Yes, the something, the police were there. And they rearranged my hair with a club in the city hall rotunda. And she wrote her song, um no hole in my head around the time of the free speech movement. Songs, in a way, have to be simple. They go by quickly. 
You can't, you know, it's not like a book that you can reread. So when you asked a question about little boxes and saying that the real problem there was that black people couldn't buy them, yes, true, but you can't stuff it all in one song or you get something like, is it even destruction, that one that's just a list of problems? That's not a song, you know? <laughs> but clearly, you as a storyteller, songwriter, educator, have got from your mother a real belief in the power of song. And, I, yeah. you know, especially now that, um, you know, perhaps people on the liberal left, if I can put it that way, imagine that they're in charge of nuance, <laughs> in fact, <laughs> and uh, qualification and yeah. taking care. The, uh, one feature of songs, particularly songs that are easily transmissible from person to person, uh, that are easily memorable, is that like all good propaganda, they are, as you just said, simple. Yeah. Um, did your, did, I mean, you obviously believe in this, but I, I suppose I want you to expand on you, you and your mother's belief and the power of song as a political tool and not merely as a some sort of beautification or or prettification of politics one thing that my mother said was that she was trying to convey to people things that they already knew but didn't know they knew hadn't thought about so she was trying to use lived experience uh in her songs the main reason, I think, and certainly one reason she left the Communist Party was that their language was so awful. They were so theoretical, and it was with their own jargon. They couldn't communicate with anybody, much less with workers on the line in a factory. I think the left has learned a little bit since then, and they've learned to listen. Um, but it's a hard road <laughs> It isn't nice to block the doorway. It isn't nice to go to jail. There are nicer ways to do it, but the nice ways always fail. You told us once, you told us twice, but if that is freedom's price, we don't mind. And right now, you know that everyone was all up in arms about these athletes kneeling. They were being nice. It didn't work. So now we have people in the streets blocking traffic and people are saying, that's not nice. Well, no, we tried nice. So here I am with Margaret Crawford from Architecture. These little boxes were being newly built in Daly City in the early 1960s. Who was building them and who were they for and who ultimately would live in them? Was it doctors and lawyers? Uh, no, I think that Malvina Reynolds got her sociology wrong there. Actually, the developer is a man named Henry Dolger, and he developed large swaths of the Sunset District in San Francisco um, with also identical houses, perhaps even more identical than the ones in Daly City. They were really intended for the middle middle class, not the doctors and lawyers. I'm not sure if they drank martinis, probably not. Beer might have been more like it. So they're really not the uh, upper middle class, but middle middle class, you could say white collar, blue collar workers, which is at, at that time who were paid fairly well. The ticky tacky, not really the case necessarily. Uh, I think they were actually relatively well built. 
Um, certainly better built than many of the houses in Berkeley uh, at that time that Malvina Reynolds might have lived in. Running through the interview was a, I think, tension between left-wing politics and the left-wing aspirations of a particular generation of white bohemians and the racial politics that cut across it. What's the history of race immigration patterns with respect to communities like the Daily City Little Boxes? Well, I guess I would say it's complicated. Daly City, uh, the Westlake neighborhood, which are the little boxes, were really designed as a whites-only community. But a lot of things changed. 1965 immigration laws changed, 1968 open housing laws. And so new people moved in. And a lot of the new people who moved in were Filipino immigrants. And now Daly City is known as the Pinoy capital. Uh, It has the largest uh, percentage of Filipinos in the United States. It's known in in the Philippines very well as a desirable destination. Uh, So times change and places change. It's interesting that Malvina Reynolds' critique of Daly City doesn't have anything to do with the racial restrictions. It actually is a taste critique. Monotony and conformism is is equated with repetition of housing types, and that's a issue called environmental determinism, in which the idea is that your environment totally determines your outcomes, and so houses that are all the same equals people who are all the same. This leads us, I think, into something that I'm going to talk more about with Timothy Hampton and Maria Sonjavitsky in a moment. It's to do with the very deep history of uh, despising the suburbs, you could say, that you know maybe starts with people like Betjeman and, I don't know, maybe even Eliot's Proofrock and takes you through Beatles' Nowhere Man and uh, entire uh, swathes of anti-suburban culture in the 1970s. Um, there's a problem, isn't there, in, in urban design discourse that the suburbs fall between two stools in a way. On the one hand, they're not the exciting density celebrated by, you know, your tech bros such as Richard Florida, where living together in cities on top of one another somehow taps into these hidden resources of human ingenuity. But on the other hand, it's not pastoralism. It's not escaping from the city. It's this middle space that's dominated by the automobile, not public transportation, and thus is rarely identified with virtues such as creativity. The suburban critique is really an intellectual and professional critique. Um, The number of people even today moving to the suburbs vastly um, outweighs the number of people moving back to central cities, even though if you read urban blogs and people like Richard Florida, um, you would never know that. Many people have moved to the suburbs over the course of the 20th century and the 21st century. African-Americans restricted from moving there, but then once those restrictions are lifted, moved in large numbers to the suburbs. So in spite of a kind of elite critique and a taste critique, uh, the suburbs actually remain really popular with American people. Malvina Reynolds is interesting because she's really a West Coast counterpart using a very different medium 
uh, than Jane Jacobs, who wrote her book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities in 1961, same year. Her target is really the suburbs. Um, she hates the suburbs. Uh, her critique of the suburbs is almost exactly the same as Malvina Reynolds. And you can say that this is a kind of, it's a discussion about distinction, um, how a certain class uh, fraction really wants to differentiate themselves, not from the ultra-rich uh, or from the poor, but really from the adjacent class fraction um, and show how they are really the problem. And so even though there is a you know, political message here about conformity and mass culture, um, it's also an element of really class distinction that a lot of bohemians and academics uh, still have, to tell the truth. How do you think we might be able to rehabilitate the suburbs as a politically progressive and interesting uh, position within a culture that still instinctively abhors them? My current research is about uh, immigrant suburbs. And I think what we're seeing now is when immigrants come to the United States, they settle immediately in suburbs. And so if you look at someplace like the San Gabriel Valley in Southern California, what you find are the so-called ethnoburbs in which Asians and Latinos are really the dominant ethnic groups and they're creating their own suburban way of life. Um, so suburbs aren't really white. They are changing. There are a lot of progressive suburbs. And I think the main thing is that you, and this is always the problem of the category, um, suburbs are so different from each other that it's hard to generalize. I live in Berkeley. I consider Berkeley a suburb. Um, I'm sure that my neighbors do not, in fact, um, and they would be horrified by that. But really, um, up in the hills here, people have to get in their cars to get a quart of milk. So it isn't really the urban ideal that a lot of them would say is, perf you know, is the best situation. It's much more like a suburb um, in other places that they would really abhor. Arguably, even San Francisco itself has become a suburb now. Yeah, it's, San Francisco is a suburb of Silicon Valley. And I think the Silicon Valley example is the most telling one, because in an almost completely suburban environment, you have the most dynamic uh, innovation and economic growth in the world. And so where is it happening? It's happening in single family houses and, uh, you know, bars like the wagon wheel on highway strips. So this really undermines, I think, the idea that creativity can only happen in these dense, walkable urban environments. The Berkeley Podcast for Music. So I'm here with Maria Sonivitsky from the Music Department and Tim Hampton from Comparative Literature and French, the director of the Townsend Centre. Maria, we, we keep on touching on this thing called folk song, folk singers. We allude to something that is more like folklore or folklorism. What even are these things and how do they relate to the kinds of politics that we've been talking about with respect to Malvina Reynolds? Wow, uh, how much time do you have? So <laughs> these are really big questions. Can I make a really big general statement maybe to begin, which is that folk song, really since we thought of the category of something like the folk, which is really a German concept, has always been really tied to a kind of mythical being. Um, and the idea that there are people 
who somehow express something truly authentic, something uncontaminated, and often something sort of uncomplicated, right? Something pristine. So the way that the folk movement in the United States reflects these kind of original ideas about folklore is really fascinating and, and has to be situated in a particular time and place. But nonetheless, the idea of the folk song, it, even in the 1950s, 1960s in the United States, had this sort of sheen um, of authenticity attached to it, right? That this was a sort of unmediated truth about life. And so that is seen both in the figure of the singer-songwriter, who often, especially early on, was a, was a man, um, which I think is relevant to this case uh, here, although we have, of course, many famous examples of women folk singers later, and also um, has a particular racialized position. So the folk song um, becomes both fetishized in the way that it is um, expressed by particularly African-Americans, but then also um, appropriated by white performers who go on to popularize these songs and capitalize on them. Um, and that's a recurring kind of cycle in American, the history of American music. So you might say that, in fact, built into the idea of folk song and perhaps folklore are certain historical patterns of exclusion, even though I suppose the idea of the folk is always to have recourse to some notion of a people, often a sort of pastoralized people, who are the real political agents outside of you know, urban power centers or something. Absolutely. And I think it would be potentially fruitful to interpret little boxes through the lens of exclusion and the kinds of exclusions that it's performing, um, both in the very notable absence of a discussion of race in the construction of the, of the suburb, which you've already touched on, but also in the ways that it is, in fact, excluding certain white people from other white people here, right? It is a sort of it is a sort of condemnation of a supposed conformity of a particular kind of non-enlightened white person. And I think we can see probably reverberations of that in our contemporary politics. Ideas of folk song, ideas of folk song mobilized for the ends of radical working class solidarity, the academy. And then the history of folk rock and rock in the 20th century, in a sense, come together at Berkeley. You know, the, the department was founded by Pete Seeger's father, Charles Seeger, in the 19-teens. Tim Hampton, what's the, ne what's the next part of that story? Like, how is it that a generation of white, self-styled folk singers position themselves with respect to white suburban conformity but also how, how, how do they produce this exclusive identity that Malvina Reynolds was both able to draw on, but also subvert in all sorts of subtle ways? Well, I think there are a couple of steps uh, along the way. Uh, a crucially important figure, of course, is Woody Guthrie, who was raised in Oklahoma and left Oklahoma to move to California in the Dust Bowl, uh, who spent time with the farm workers in the Central Valley and wrote about them. He wrote about the difficulties of coming to California. He has this wonderful song called Do Re Mi, where he says, California is a garden of Eden. It's a paradise to live in or see. But believe it or not, you won't find it so hot if you ain't got the Do Re Mi. I think this is something we can all relate to, uh, given tuition uh, increases and cost of living increases in California. It's an ongoing problem. Anyway, Guthrie comes to California and he gets uh, involved in the music scene in L.A. 
And he emerges as a kind of figure of authenticity because he had been in the fields. Uh, and yet he was not singing necessarily songs that had been handed down or were presumed to have been handed down. He, he, he invented his own songs. He wrote songs from scratch, the most famous being, of course, This Land is Your Land. Um, and he was picked up then as a kind of figure of authenticity by a sort of left-wing uh, political culture. That tradition, um, which is then uh, filtered through his friend Pete Seeger, who Charles Seeger's son, who was of course the great folk singer and folklorist, and who helped make Woody Guthrie uh, uh, famous in many ways by recording many of his songs. That tradition then sort of bubbles along and it's disturbed in a certain kind of way by another kind of radicalism or rebellion, which happens in the 1950s with the onset of rock and roll. In the 1950s and the beginning of the 1960s, there's a sense that pop music in all of its forms has become completely boring, first off, and also completely artificial and overproduced and slick. From within, there, from within that world, then you get the emergence of figures who write against that slick product, production. The main figure, of course, the most famous is Bob Dylan, who is a middle-class Jewish boy from Minnesota, but present, presents himself as if he were a hobo, uh, just in off the uh, riding the rails and sing songs about rural America. Um, so there's this idea that the folk singer becomes a kind of mouthpiece through which the collective consciousness of the non-urban world can express itself. Then folk music becomes something slightly different, which is that it becomes a style of performance. If you play a guitar, and sing on the street corner, you are a folk musician. If you play an electric guitar and are backed with a band, you're not a folk musician. Even though, of course, many of the greatest blues, black blues musicians from Chicago in the 1950s and 60s, like Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters, would certainly be, one would think of them as folk musicians, but they would never be categorized as folk musicians by the press. So there's, this, so there's a strange sense in which uh, folk music then becomes a style. Right? And this takes us back in some ways to what um, was being said earlier in the broadcast about little boxes as being a kind of commentary on style. What is the style of architecture in which you live? Right? Uh, what is the style of music that you play? Maria, can I just to sort of prompt you on this as well? Yeah, this is something that you've written about, although with respect to um, various Eastern European, Russian, Ukrainian contexts. You know, when we talk about style and invest that sense of style, particularly if that style has a sheen of authenticity, as you put it, because of its folk-like or sort of folkish uh, elements, are we always displacing politics into some sort of aesthetic realm, much as, you know, t Tim just implied was happening with little boxes? Or is there a sense that, you know, we can still talk about what, folk music can accomplish because there's no question that no matter how invented no matter that it was implicated in all kinds of patterns of exclusion Malvina Reynolds generation really were involved in political action and their faith in the power of song came not just from some utopian notion of what you could achieve stylistically or artistically but also from seeing 
presumably, what song actually accomplished when it did things like activate communities or um, solidify resistance. I'm wondering if there's a way that we can pick our way through this political and aesthetic minefield with respect to the kinds of music that you've written about. Yeah, so the, the kind of intermingling of politics and aesthetics, or in fact, the possibility that politics and aesthetics are one and the same is something I am slightly obsessed with as a question. And if we turn to certain theories, right, then we, then we look at um, classic sociological studies of taste making and distinction as actually being the very operations of, of politics. Malvina Reynolds wrote a song that is, what, two and a half minutes long. It is a song. It is not a dissertation, right? And so we can, we can note certain things to be true about absences and exclusions here. But there's also no question that the suburbs today function as a political dog whistle to indicate whiteness primarily, even though that is not demographically true, nor has it ever been so, so simple quite. And we see the utility of that dog whistle in comforting property owners that their property values will remain uh, on the upswing, even despite everything else that's going on in our, in our economy today. Um, so we can see how Malvina Reynolds may not have had a complete picture. She may not have been aware of the history of redlining in Daly City, um, but she nonetheless touched upon a very powerful racial metaphor um, for uh, whiteness and its kind of stronghold in, in the suburbs. I mean, this is what the power of song is, right? I mean, the, the, the power of song is that it's not only language, it's also sound, it's also rhythm, it's something that sticks in your body. And so that's why th those two minutes of that song are much more powerful than a dissertation. And I would just call attention in a, in a contemporary context to the fact that last night at the Democratic um, uh, Convention, there was a, uh, a performance by Billy Porter of Stephen Stills' song from 1967, For What It's Worth, about the riots in, on Sunset Strip. I mean, that song is completely relevant today. And, and, and once you get it in your head, as I've had it today, you can't get it out. And that's, that's what music does. Thanks to Nancy Schimmel, Timothy Hampton, Maria Sonjavitsky and Margaret Crawford. Follow us on Twitter or visit us at the Music Department website where you'll find links to further reading and listening based on today's episode, information about Music Department events, how to donate to the Music Department and much, much more. My name's Nicholas Matthew. That was BPM. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can find more talks with transcripts at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.